You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Greetings, Earthlings, to the wonderful planet of radiotherapy in the galaxy of Triple R. Do not bother yourself with issues of interplanetary peace and harmony or matters of climatic upheaval across the universe. The important matter to discuss is my planet's trouble enforcing a $7 GP co-payment. Welcome, everyone, to the radiotherapy world. I'm Dr. Hawkeye, and we've got a couple of, uh, we've got a few wonderful guests in the studio with us today. Uh, first up, uh, once a very hungry caterpillar incubating in the tall man's postgraduate medical student processing plant, she has come off the production line as its poster child. Now a wonderful, glorious butterfly, the tall man has been left to eat her dust. She is Dr. Rad. Good morning, Dr. Rad. Good morning. What an introduction. Wow. Uh, it's a well-deserved introduction. And our second, our next panellist is... Uh, is uh, a man who hopes to one day author The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Amygdala. Uh, when he was a young man, he was never afraid to, get, afraid to get down and dirty in the sand pit and is now a child psychiatrist. Dr. Deep thought, get off that therapy couch in your soaking, cycling lycra. Not many things leave me speechless, but that introduction is <laughs> probably one of them. Good morning. Excellent. How, how is your amygdala travelling today? Uh, look, I must admit I'm a bit of a fair weather cyclist when it comes to weather like today, and my amygdala is lovely and dry. Oh, excellent. It's good to hear. <laughs> Still wrapped in lycra, though. That's good to hear. So, what did you think about you know the, the $7 GP co-payment making international news yesterday? Oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just curled up in shame. I, if I can join Team Un-Australia, I'll uh, be front of the queue. Team Un-Australia? Boasting about uh, reducing accessibility of healthcare to the poorest and most vulnerable in the community as one of the four goals of his government is just utterly shameful. I didn't mind the, the $3 billion slapdown uh, Obama gave him uh, a couple of minutes later, though. Uh, but to think that, that so anyone on the planet might think this guy represents us is just cringeworthy. Okay, so uh, with no bias at all, let's move on. Um, the, uh, so I participated in a debate this week at my hospital. The topic was that Dr Wikipedia has made consultants obsolete. Okay, uh, we've got a consultant over there, DP. Uh, so what do you reckon? Well, look, the fact that I'm not obsolete and I'm still employed proves that the question is wrong. That would be my opening line in the debate. But, uh, look, uh, I, I think the role of the, the, of the consultant isn't just around uh, knowledge base. It's around interpretation of knowledge. And certainly Dr Wikipedia can give you the knowledge, and in fact Dr Internet can give you the knowledge even more so than Dr Wikipedia. But uh, you get all, you get contra you'll get contrary and contradictory positions on absolutely every question in medicine. So if you read far enough, ev the answer to everything will be yes, but or no, but. And the skill is in the interpretation of the information, not the information itself. So you're, you're going the experience, maturity, perspective line and telling us that the internet's just not good enough. I've made plenty of mistakes and my experience comes from learning from my mistakes. Okay, so you're running a very similar argument to the consultants at our hospital who said that, who said that really Wikipedia's... Uh, they played the man. They said Wikipedia is, yeah, is no good and we are really, really good. No, but, I would, uh, no, I wouldn't say it's no good. I think Wikipedia's a fantastic source of information. In fact, I use it myself as a consultant <laughs> but I know what information is more helpful for me and which information is not and then I can go and cross-reference that and look at 
the original studies and the biases and the interpretations that come from the original studies and uh, it makes it easier to interpret the information that I read in Wikipedia rather than just taking it at face value. That's a very serious approach to a, to a comedy debate topic. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, uh, There's so going to be a straight man in every de- comedy debate. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rad, uh, the junior staff uh, who were arguing that consultants are obsolete kind of ignored the Wikipedia question so much and, and played the man, uh, played the consultants and uh, went after the consultants and we just argued that, that they are obsolete. And, uh, <laughs> and there were some great, great uh, stories told about consultants in the country who left the ward round at about 9.30 every morning and had uh, their continuing involvement in the activity of the hospital was to have the junior staff deliver them McDonald's to their private rooms every <laughs> single day. Um, and uh, I commented that, uh, that hospitals actually pay consultants to be away from the hospital for most hours of every day. In fact, they pay them even more to go away on sabbaticals. <laughs> and so the hospital, rec- hospital recognises that consultants really are, are obsolete. What do you reckon? Oh, look, as someone that, you know, sometimes felt throughout medical school that I basically obtained a medical degree through Dr. Wiki myself, um, it is it is a little bit hard on the other side now as a working doctor. Um, I, I tend to agree with Deep Thought. You know, there is, there is a lot more of a role uh, for consultants in terms of interpretation of these results and making... Uh, there's a lot of resources out there that you need to be able to sift through and, and understand what's sort of most important or not. And I don't know, maybe that's just... Wishful thinking because I will one day be a consultant and I hope there's a job for me. <laughs> Can I just point out that hospitals don't just pay consultants to go away; they also pay them to come back. <laughs> Sorry, are you talking about uh, are you talking about being on call or on call or on sabbatical? They actually pay them to come back and use the knowledge that they've got in an interpretive way that's helpful for the hospital. Oh, right. So, so my si- I, feel like, I, feel, man role. I feel like my cynicism has been slapped down uh, completely and utterly. And okay, by the every- way, here's $3 billion for it. Okay, yeah. every, everyone, every consultant listening to this show, you're not obsolete. It's okay. Radiotherapy loves you. Um, so another issue that came up this week in the, in the press was this question of whose test is it anyway? Um, and the... Uh, Certain uh, medical consumer groups and uh, the RACGP, the Royal Australian College of General Practice, as well as the AMA, lined up in a bit of an argument about uh, about whether or not pathology tests, radiology tests, other medical investigations should be delivered straight to the patient, uh, so mailed or emailed or phone calls, perhaps straight from the the test provider to the patient. Uh, any any first thoughts before I, before I tell you about some of the arguments that came up? Look, I think it segues from the uh, first question we were talking about don't have a problem with that but what does it mean it's about the interpretation of the result not the result itself though i think the the other thing that's important with that if that's happening as a routine process is the preparation work that needs to happen with the uh, patient before they get the result for instance you wouldn't uh, be happy with someone getting mailed their HIV or cancer test result without having first discussed the implications of the test before they even did the test. Do we have time for that in the era of six-minute medicine? I don't think we've got time to not do it, really. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think also the, the main point here as well is, you know, that exactly what you said, um, Deep Thought, in terms of the follow-up required with these... It's, one thing is the interpretation of these results and often we find in medicine that we have a um, result that is out of the standard sort of uh, range that's given to us but 
might not actually be any clinical relevance to that. And so sometimes people get fixated on numbers when there actually doesn't have that much clinical relevance. The second point, I guess, is, yeah, exactly, the follow-up that's required in terms of these results. There's a lot of education and counselling and support that's required when a new diagnosis is made, and it's really important that patients have access to that. Um, And when they're getting their results directly from a pathology centre, there's no opportunity for that necessarily unless the patient then goes and makes an appointment again and decides that it's something that they would rather discuss with the doctor as opposed to look up, you know, on Dr Wiki. Mm, and I think, I think the other point there, and the reason that I posed uh, that question of whose test is it anyway, is that I think of each medical test, whether it's a blood test or, a, or anything else, uh, a medical test is essentially an experiment uh, based on a hypothesis. And the hypothesis is, you know, is the doctor's and usually and hopefully shared with the patient. And uh, the test is an experiment. And these, this is an experiment that does that very rarely has a yes and no about it. You know, these are tests with uh, with the potential to have false positives, false negatives, uh, as well as uh, true positives and true negatives, and some degree of kind of a nuanced understanding of of, of uh, what a test means for a particular patient is is required. And I, I actually think it's too much to expect, and not particularly fair to expect uh, every patient to have that perspective. I certainly have no idea what the plumber's doing when he comes and you know fixes fixes the pipes at, at my place. Um, but uh, you know, and I think it's uh, I think it's not really that much different. Yeah, and I think that you know, at the end of the day, most of the doctors that I've visited as a patient are more than happy to print off the result and give it to me, or I, in some way, can have access to those results. So it's not it's not a matter of that they know something that I don't know, or that they're hiding something from me, or. So it's not a matter of, you know, that that the information is not being shared. So I think it's just about the way in which it's given or the timing of which it's given to ensure that they get the best possible care. Okay, so whose test is it anyway? It's our test, I think. Yeah, it's ours. So the blood the blood belongs to the patient, but the result uh, the result belongs to the patient, but you know, it's a result that's explained and given some kind of context. Any anything else that anyone's picked up this week of particular interest? Yeah, look, and I just point out that we've actually talked about two separate issues now. Now for everyone who's listening, there's a Seven dollar co-payment for every issue, <laughs> and I'd like you to forward your money to uh, Radiotherapy Care of Three Triple R. So that's fourteen dollars for each listener, please. Yeah, and uh, and don't worry, we've got plenty more coming up. So we're going to build some roads to the studio with it. So open up those wallets. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Our next guest uh, is uh, is Helen Schumach, and Helen's one of these uh, one of these wonderful people who, when she travels to an international conference, needs to buy a separate uh, seat uh, for her curriculum vitae. Um, she's. Uh, and under, uh, she did her undergraduate training at uh, the University of Melbourne, has a master's degree from the University of Kansas, uh, so there's no place like home. And she came back to here to do her PhD at the National Music Therapy Research Unit at the University of Melbourne in 2007. In 2007. And apparently it's in qualitative microanalysis, markers of interplay between the music therapist and the medically fragile newborn infant. She now works at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, uh, working specifically in the neonatal unit. Uh, well, Welcome, Helen. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so, uh, 
neonatal music therapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So some people out there are saying music therapy sounds a bit like a wine tasting course at university. Thanks. um, That'd be 30 30 years down the drain, but don't worry about that. And and, and now you're talking about newborn uh, neonatal music therapy. Yeah. I I, I say to the students, I'm the Julie Andrews of music therapy. I get to start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. (laughs) Got it. That's fine if the students know who Julie Andrews is. (laughs) So So are we talking about babies here? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I work in the intensive care unit, uh, the butterfly unit at RCH, and working with newborn babies and their mums. Um, and what we're doing there is using uh, auditory stimulation, basically, to preserve uh, neurological functioning, so the functioning of the brain for the newborn baby, and understanding that to do that we need to obviously include parents, and particularly mums. Babies' brains are primed for their mums' voices. So when you've got a baby that can't be touched and can't be moved, can't be cuddled, can't be swaddled, you know, can't be lifted out of bed at all, can't perhaps see at the moment if they're sedated, etc. There are very limited opportunities to, you know, sustain normal neurological development, normal psyche development, normal mind, heart, soul development. And so ba- uh, baby's ears are still working and mum's voices are still working and so we utilise uh, mum's voice as the ideal auditory stimulus to keep that baby's brain moving so, along. So these sick babies, that they can hear? Yeah, absolutely. They've been listening for a long time. Absolutely. In, in years, right? Yeah. So even before they came out, they could hear? They could indeed. They've been listening for a long time. So the, the ears um, formed uh, you know, in the first trimester and by second trimester, baby, well, uh, the fetus is responding to um, auditory stimulation from outside. And then certainly in the third trimester, they're already processing mum's voice and other voices that, are, that they hear a lot. Okay, um, and so, so what what do you think they're listening to uh, in there? What are they hearing? Everything. Everything. So, but predominantly, mum's voice is you know that's the that's the stimulus that they're connected to, and they hear that most every day, um, in and out um, each day, and other voices that are around a lot. Uh, so, if there are siblings, you know they're just the right height. They're usually about <laughs> abdomen height, and so the, um, we know that uh, newborn babies will recognise mum's voice uh, most, then siblings' voices, and then dad's voices after that. So. That they know those voices when they come out. The newborn babies within 36 hours of being born can recognise mum's voice as opposed to another woman's voice. So you've set yourself a quite an ambitious target, sure. really. You're, you're going to save the brains yep. of, uh, of our most vulnerable babies That's correct. with music. <laughs> Well, you know, not just with music. So it's a contextualised music and it's one of the things that's really important to understand. You know, when we think about something like music therapy, a lot of people think about Mozart, uh, you know, recorded music and those sorts of things. And that's not what we're talking about. That's a beautiful example of we use recorded music to help babies go to sleep and stay asleep. That's music medicine when the, you put on a CD and or you put on a track and, and, you know, off you go. But in music therapy, what we're doing is working with the families to have them understand how their own music their own voice, their own um, sensibility about making sound uh, is uh, useful to their baby's well-being. One, I was going to say, one of the difficulties is it's called music therapy, but it really should be called sound therapy. Uh, sound therapy is a different thing, actually. So sound therapy, there's actually a field called sound therapy, okay. which is distinct from How's music therapy. Different? Well, sound therapy uses things about mm, music and other sound just as a stimulus, just as a mechanical stimulus, and that it has a direct impact on the brain. And in music therapy, what we're talking about is human beings and their own uh, musicality, so their own sense of their own musicality so the way in which they use their voice um, 
when I come and talk to you and I would like you to listen to me, then I'm going to go up at the end of my sentence. So I'm going to entice you to listen to me like this. And when we talk to babies and we want them to bring their attention to us, we'll invite them in. You're going to so the difference to me, is it's about the interaction. It's about the interaction. So what we're doing is the humanity of the sound. So it's not just a stimulus a sound. of its own. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So how do you, I'm so intrigued, how do you actually work with families to achieve this? So most people have a relationship with music in some way or another and so we often talk about, um, you know, do you you find yourself singing during the day? Do you sing in in your everyday experience? And we did a study a few years ago where we surveyed the mums in the unit. 100% of the mums sing at some point in every day, usually associated with driving, driving, showering or vacuuming. Okay, so these are the three main activities that go along with singing, usually singing along with something else Mm. so we know that it's an approachable kind of concept not for everyone but for most mums it absolutely is and so when we engage them with their own sense of music their own music experience then we then they can draw on that to bring that into the unit for their baby so we we know that more mums will sing to their baby in the NICU in the neonatal intensive care unit than for instance will read to their babies and a lot of people talk about reading to babies and what a good idea it is but actually if you leave mums to their own devices more of them will actually sing than than will read so we know that it's already there it's already available and what we're going to do is now consciously call on that to benefit their very sick baby so what are these mums singing whatever they need to sing so the natural tone of a mum's voice is, um, you know, if a baby is distressed, their mum's going to sing quietly and soothingly and those sorts of things, and we will encourage them to do that. But I worked with a mum many years ago who was a singing teacher, and one of her students was going to audition for Australian Idol when that was a thing. Um, and um, uh, the student was learning to sing Proud Mary. And so this baby had been growing in utero listening to Proud Mary, and this mum was found, you know, in the intensive care unit singing, Proud Mary keeps on rolling, rolling, rolling. And that babe was soothed to it, and you could watch uh, his heart rate come down, and he would settle to that particular song. So mums will sing in a way which is soothing and productive for their babe. So Helen, I presume then there's a difference in the response that we get in babies between them hearing a tune and them hearing a song. Um, in what way do you do you mean? Let me just be sure I understand what you're asking. Like, me. Uh, like if we played a, vo- a, a baby a, an instrumental track. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Without without words, yeah. yeah. That, that it might have a different response sure. than if we played them an a cappella track. Yeah. So the, there's some. We're, we're just starting to get into the research about that, the distinction between those sorts of things. We know that uh, a voice, so a human voice, is better than an instrumental track for newborn babies for instance so um, but uh, the nuances of that is something that we're just starting to unpack now so you can understand doing research with you know medically fragile newborn babies you've got to be pretty careful about what it is that you offer up you can't just go I wonder how they'll respond to Def Leppard as opposed to Mozart (laughs) Um, although you know it's really interesting and we'd love to know Um, but um, you know we're just starting to get to the place where we can actually research that safely Uh, and so there's some nice research coming out of the United States from Harvard etc on those things. So is it just a question of familiarity is it just that that babies neonatally have heard a lot of human voices and so hearing human and voices um, builds further on the on the the brain tracks and brain yeah. development that they've already had, or is there something innate in babies that 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 uh, has to do specifically with the human voice? Uh, the human voice is absolutely pivotal to baby's survival. To survive, they need their mum. Do they need to feed from their mum? They need to find their mum, and the way they find their mum is through their mum's voice. 
So you could say that, in fact, mum's voice is actually an essential part of the survival uh, process. So on that basis, it makes sense that the human voice is the thing that, that we work with. And I should say that this is what we work with. Uh, you, you could go to NICU's uh, elsewhere in the world, in the United States particularly, and you would find a different use of music. But for us, this is the way we've established it here. So it's very contextualised, it's very culturally driven, um, and it's very specific to each family in the way in which they would use their voice and those sorts of things. But you're right, it, it is about familiarity um, and it is about utilising the existing capabilities of each family, and the, particularly the mums, because they're the ones who are still at bedside, um, to use their voice. So do, singing is, you know, obviously I'm biased, I'm a music therapist, I'm all about the music, but if sing, singing is not something that's approachable for a mum, I'm not going there, I'm not going to make her sing, I'm not interested in forcing music on anybody, I'm interested in utilising what I call musicality, so the musical qualities of the person and, and how that makes them comfortable to be uh, uh, the best possible parent that they can be to that baby in that time of acute distress. And do you, do you take instruments around as well as as well as your voice? Um, personally, no. Uh, we do use instruments on other wards. So once babies are more stable, um, so some of uh, my interns will use uh, guitar, sometimes keyboard. Um, in the United States, they use other instruments as well. They will use, um, in some of the units, there's a program called the Rhythm, Breath and Lullaby program. They use little ocean discs and um, uh, gutto. Uh, boxes so but that's in a, where the school of thought is about replicating the in utero experience so having the whoosh 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 and the and the heartbeat of the mother etc so different school of thought okay and uh, so i know that you've told you've told us that it you know it depends on each baby and each family mm-hmm. but do you have a personal top five if you've got any any <laughs> when when, when mums are a bit ambivalent about the idea and they haven't really been doing a lot of singing mm-hmm. what, what are your go-to you know your go-to anthems for for neonatal music therapy so we go back to you know basically kindergarten repertoire that's the that's the repertoire that is best entrenched in pretty much anybody's mind so if i ask you to you know sing along with me with twinkle twinkle or if you're you know australian you you know, Bananas and Pyjamas or those sorts of songs. They're the songs where we go because they're the ones that the mums remember best. Yeah, so that's what I'll start with. I'm interested in, in what's actually the result of the musical mm. therapy. What are the physiological changes in the infants? Mm. Like, why are we doing it? Well, if we're doing it to look at physiological changes, that would be the first thing. Um, then we do see generally uh, in the uh, meta-analysis studies, we see that there is usually uh, a good result if babies, for instance, have had some kind of procedure and their heart rate is elevated, then the use of uh, recorded music will help the heart rate to stabilise back into a safe range more quickly than if they're just left to their own devices. So we see that kind of thing. There's been a lot of studies looking at physiological responses, and um, but that is certainly the strongest one, the impact on the heart rate. So, so it's a it's a regulating process. It absolutely that helps is. Babies organise and regulate sure. their physiological process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've raised the. I think you got near the topic of overstimulation sure. in terms of talking about lots of instruments and and other other things like that in the in the nursery. Um, which made me think of whether or not there's a there's a lower uh, point. Uh, there's a flaw on the the, mm. the uh, gestational age. That how just how tiny, just how young a baby can be before music therapy. Any music therapies may be a little bit too much. Yeah, uh, and it's a really good question. And some of the early research, you know, back in the uh, late 90s, was um, looking at that. 
very point, and they did some studies with bubs as young as 26 weeks gestation. So in our unit, we don't use any external uh, stimuli. So uh, putting aside for a moment mum's voice, okay, we don't introduce anything else. I wouldn't go in and do any direct work with a baby, certainly um, before 28 weeks. Uh, absolutely not, um, and generally not before 32 weeks. So once the afferent pathways to the brain are established and we've, we know that we've got some auditory processing going on, then I think that we're in safer in a safer place and we can start to do things. But until that point, I think that we're in on dangerous ground, and you know it has to go proceed very very carefully. Having said that, at that point. That's when I would work with mums to use their voice or dads, for, you know, to use their voices with the baby. That is the safest ideal stimulus. That's the one that we know that the baby's brain is expecting. So why wouldn't we use that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we leave it very much in the domain of uh, parents using their voices at that time uh, to apart from anything else, to establish uh, bonding with their baby. Obviously, you know, we've got an important window there where we don't, and we don't want to lose that opportunity. So, mm. yeah, so my work will be with the parents, not with the baby, but with the parents. Yeah, and this is an environment which, of course, is so, it's so where parent-child bonding is, is so, yeah. uh, so vulnerable and yeah. uh, under stress. Yeah, absolutely. We're focusing on the infant here. Mm-hmm. Of course, we're, it's a dyadic relationship. It's about two. Have you also looked at the effect of the music therapy you're doing on the parents on the mothers Mm -hmm. there is some early work on that as well and uh, some of my colleagues in the united states are looking at things like uh, the role of uh, listening to music for mums who are trying to express milk and we find an increased uh, volume of uh, milk being expressed when they sit and listen to familiar music and relax to, to that music so we've got that kind of thing that's coming through now as well absolutely so, uh, given unlimited funding, <laughs> yes, given <please>. absolutely unlimited <laughs> yes, funding, I'd like that. <laughs> what is a dream children's hospital from a music uh, from a music therapy perspective? What would be in that hospital? A really integrated program where we know, and we do have at RCH, we have a, an, um, a, an excellent arts health program that is just starting to really find momentum. Um, they participated this week in the arts health conference that was here in Melbourne, where music is, is a normal thing you know we don't own music as music therapists where we think that music should be something that everybody gets to do in any form so that that very normal experience and exposure to music that should be a foundation and then actually the uh, application of music to help children who have a, a more pathological need perhaps or have um, you know need to uh, acclimatize to being in hospital uh, or uh, you know for instance we have music therapy in the neuro ward we don't have nearly enough hours so when children emerge from coma music therapy is the first service that is provided because it is uh, um, a, a really good uh, regulator for those kids who are in um, post-traumatic amnesia. You know, they really respond well to familiar, well-organised music. So if we could have a music therapist there every time a, car, a child emerges from coma, that would be an ideal service. Um, every family could have, a, have access to a music therapist to understand how they can bring their own family music experience into hospital and make it utterly and completely normal for their child. Adolescent unit, you know, hey, music Music is well-being for a lot of uh, teenagers and so helping them to find their way to use their music in a way which sustains the normal healthy part.
part of them, as well as helping to, to deal with whatever's brought them into hospital. Wow, that that dream hospital sounds so nice. I yeah, think you'd have people. Board. I think you'd have people buying rooms <laughs> yeah. uh, to move in. You know, alarm music Absolutely. therapist as your alarm clock. Wouldn't that be lovely? We could do that for you. No worries. And of course, there'd be a big shiny new road straight to the. That's front door. right. Yeah. <laughs> Seven dollars a pop. <laughs> well, I, having visited the children's hospital, I must say, when you say that music is normalised, that's probably the one hospital that mm. I've walked into where you know it really does feel like that. Right. That and is good. Yeah, as as an you know as someone that was a visitor there, I think it's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, great. And uh, we one thing we haven't quite touched on is just how unusual an environment in NICU is. <laughs> um, that we're talking about extraordinarily vulnerable babies. Some mm. of these babies that could literally fit in any of the listeners' hands, mm. um, and uh, and. Uh, babies for whom the first couple of weeks of life are really defined by kind of a rolling life-saving effort Um, and uh, so it's an unbelievably stressful environment for the patients and their parents but also for the staff so uh, as someone who didn't train you know didn't do a medical degree isn't a Mm. nurse and didn't kind of grow up as a as a professional in that system how do you how do you take care of yourself uh working in a stressful environment like that oh for us that that's that's part of our professional uh skill set and you know we're required to uh pursue a supervision uh and you know sustain our own good health obviously you know that's important um the other part of that just to go backwards a little bit is to say that you know we also are responsible in the NICU not elsewhere yet uh for the auditory environment so we monitor the auditory environment on a monthly basis as part of the quality program trying to reduce um, the ongoing ambient sort of sound levels and, those and terrible try- alarms yeah yeah so try and noise events so you know we've just done a big study where we've actually taken apart the sound environment and looking at the ongoing sound and these noise events which really interrupt but looking at that and my concern is that how wearing that is for the staff who are there for 12 hours a day and they don't necessarily no- notice it but it's certainly having an well, impact well the alarms are designed to evoke a stress response. Why would you want to stress staff That's right. who need to care for people who are unwell? Exactly. Well, I will say this, having visited a lot of neonatal intensive care units around the world, that the, the NICU at RCH is particularly good with that. They do whatever they can to keep those alarms as quiet as possible, as short as possible. Those nurses are really stellar when it comes to that. Um, and I work with them on a monthly basis to uh, look at ways that we can um, reduce those things that are really intrusive. Like the man on the right on floor cleaner. That is the worst noise in the entire unit. Oh yes, what a so, drone! So that that adds, you know, 12 dBA into any room. Um, so we, you know, so now the nurses know that he's coming. They close the doors, and so we keep. So yeah, Helen, the doctors in this room Sorry. think that the worst <laughs> think that the worst noise isn't that. That's the second worst noise. The worst noise is your pager going off. Oh, so oh, on, yeah. that does evoke a stress response. <laughs> that it does indeed. So uh, thank you so much, You're Helen, welcome. for coming on the show. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. So, uh, from from the power of suggestion to the power of screening uh, with Dr. Rad. Yeah, well, guys, you'll be very, very interested, and even the females listening to Radiotherapy Now will be very excited about the good news that I heard this week, which is that a new product is about to hit the Australian markets. It is a do it yourself pap smear test. That sounds enticing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, the product itself is a DIY pap smear test, which has actually already been approved by the TGA, which is the Therapeutic Goods Administration, and it's a body that sort of regulates medicines and medical devices within Australia. And it's set to hit the shelves within a couple of weeks. Um, 
and you get it for about around $50 over the counter, probably at a pharmacist or maybe even a supermarket. So, first impressions, Helen. Oh, cheers. <laughs> well, you're the female, well, the other female. Yeah, yeah, I, I think uh, that's great news. I mean, everyone knows that, you know, we hate going and getting these things done. We put them off and, I mean, I'm fascinated. Yeah, right? My first yeah. question is, you know, how reliable are they? And I yeah. guess they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, any, yeah, so well, I'm I guess go, I'm going back to my pre psychiatrist days <laughs> when you when, were a woman, right? when, when I was <laughs> yeah. a woman. No, when, when I would be doing pap tests, maybe this is why I was a psychiatrist. <laughs> Sometimes it's quite difficult to actually find a cervix, and, yeah. and uh, there's quite a bit of skill involved. Mm. Now, of course, it's a bit different because you're using a speculum, which is a different instrument from I imagine what this test is. But how, how accurate is it in actually finding yeah. the right place to get Ex- some cells? Exactly. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And we'll talk a little bit more about false positives and false negatives in just a second. But I guess I wanted to go back to basics briefly, just about what is a screening test, because this is something that we you know, use quite a lot and is very, very common to the, you know, to the general population. And I guess a screening test is trying to identify an unrecognised disease in an individual, which in an individual that does not have any signs or symptoms. So these are people that are otherwise healthy and they don't have any signs or symptoms relating to what you're trying to look for. So we do this so that, you know, we can hopefully try and instill early intervention and management so that the disease burden is actually reduced and the suffering is reduced. And I guess that's the other part of the rationale for the screening test that you're doing it in for looking for a disease where early intervention makes a difference in the outcome. That's exactly right. If it made no difference, there'd be no value in doing the screening test. That's absolutely right. And I guess I'll stress that it's not a diagnostic test. It's a screening test. So it's giving you the opportunity um, to, I guess, catch something before it develops into something more serious. Okay. And I guess in Australia, we're really lucky because we've got quite a few screening tests available to the general public. Obviously, the pap smear for for women, um, but also mammography for breast cancer. Um, We have faecal occult blood tests and colonoscopies for colon cancer. We can also do special ultrasound scans on pregnant women to look for the risk of Downs um, and other sort of fetal abnormalities. And, of course, the newborn blood spot screening, um, you know, which which uh, identifies serious metabolic disorders. And can I raise the best screening test in the entire country, which is the newborn hearing screen? Mm-hmm. It is by far, by the definitions of what you want from a test, it is the best screening test we have. It's a test that, that works. It's a test that saves babies' brains so that they can experience music therapy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but I guess with most of the screening tests that we have at the moment available through a national program, you have to either go to a doctor or to another health service, you know, schedule time out of your busy lives to go and do this, um, then engage in that investigation or examination, and then you know, have a follow-up appointment to go and actually see what that showed. I guess this is where do-it-yourself kits come in, you know, because they're responding to consumer sort of demand and they're obviously uh, reflecting the advances in medicine and in technology as well. And a quick search online actually revealed that there's so many of these do-it-yourself tests already available. I've got one on my iPhone that's a screening test for skin lesions and it actually photographs the skin lesion and then looks on a database and there are all these algorithms for 
for telling you whether it's something that you should be concerned about or something that's not to worry about. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, they're fantastic tools that are available and some other examples are you can actually do a pinprick test at home to check for the PSA or prostate-specific antigen for prostate cancer. You can do a scratch-and-sniff test for Alzheimer's disease. Um, there's also a saliva test that's now become available for HIV. And there's other sort of urine tests that you can do to look for bone markers or glucose for osteoporosis or for diabetes. So there's lots of things out there, but I guess um, what are the benefits of these do-it-yourself do tests? Well, I guess, first of all, it avoids you having to schedule an appointment to go and see a doctor and take time out of your busy life. And I guess it gives the person more control and autonomy over their, over their health. It allows you to engage in, in you know, taking ownership over your own health on a regular, you know, perhaps even a weekly basis with an app that allows you to do that. I guess it also avoids a lot of embarrassment that's surrounding things like the pap smear or the, mam the mammogram where you've got to go squeeze your boob in between, you know, two metal plates. Like, um, and therefore, if it's less embarrassing, maybe more people are likely to comply, you know. So that, I mean, I, I do see the positives in these things, but we've got to be really careful about the negatives of, of, of these do-it-yourself kits as well. And um, I guess the one thing that you, you touched on before was, you know, that these are... These, Tests are already good, but they're not perfect. Some of them do require some expertise. So with the, with the pap smear, for example, you actually need to directly visualise the cervix, and that's how we're taught in medical school, and that's how it's done. You need to actually be able to look at the part that you're sampling and take an appropriate sample from there. I'm trying to imagine the stretching regimen that's required. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that flexible. Yeah, well, exactly. And I guess and we're worried then about false negatives mm -hmm. or false positives. Well, false negatives would be more of a concern yeah. than false Positive. Absolutely. False positive, you just have that doctor visit anyway. Yeah. And in fact, screening tests are uh, inherently, by their nature, you want a screening test to deliver more false negative, more false positives and no false negatives. So the other way of describing that uh, is you want a very, very sensitive test uh, yeah. more than a very specific test, which mm. is what you want from a diagnostic test. Yeah, you want to maybe overreact a little bit with the screening test so that you, know, you can go off and have the other tests available. I guess the other thing as well is that if you're doing these tests at home, you're missing out on the opportunistic screening that, that it allows. So you're GP is not then able to, when you come in for a pap smear, talk to you about, you know, your... your um, the rest of your life. Yeah, the rest of your life, exactly. How well, are you breast feeling? Breast examination. Yeah, how are, are you feeling? Can I show, do you know how to do a breast examination? Mm. Um, you know, are you, are you due for an STI screen? You know, all these sorts of things are then missed mm. along the way because, you know, it's up to you as an individual to think of all these things. And I think that's too much ownership on the individual. The last thing that I think in terms of the, you know, the biggest drawback about this is that sometimes we're talking about big diagnoses here and they're, they're huge implications. This is sort of going back to what we were talking about at the very start of the show. This is not something that you want to be sitting in your toilet with a urine test or, you know, finding out that you, you may have interpreted this and that, you know, you may have cancer or, you know, another serious sort of investigation. You need the support and the education and, and you know, the advice of someone that, that is able to help you interpret these results. Um, Especially when the test itself may, may... There may be real questions about the test itself. Yeah, exactly right. So I think overall this is an exciting sort of product that's coming onto the markets. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of data um, that's been published about the efficacy of, of, this, of this specific product. So I would urge all the women out there to, you know, keep an eye on it. I think that there's going to be some developments, but to probably schedule a, a, 
appointment with your GP if you're overdue and to and to keep going that way. Great. And as the infectious diseases physician on the panel, uh, I can say that, you know, if you really want to make sure that that pap smear was, uh, you know, if you want to increase the, the likelihood of that pap smear uh, being negative, then get on board with uh, with HPV vaccination uh, for girls especially and maybe, maybe even for boys. Okay, Dr. Deep Thought, uh, talking, about, uh, talking about things that come out of vaginas. Uh, <laughs> we're on to we're, we're talking a little bit about fetuses and and alcohol. Oh, okay. Oh, I was gosh. wondering how we were going to segue. That is a heck of a segue. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to get my head around that one. Speechless twice. I don't, I don't want your head anywhere show. near that one. I think that's a record. <laughs> what I was going to talk about was uh, something that that has. That's potentially a big problem. Well, I don't think potentially. I think it is a big problem in the community. One of the big problems potentially is the name of the problem. Uh, Most people have heard about something called fetal alcohol syndrome, something that happens to uh, the babies of women who are pregnant who drink very high levels of alcohol during pregnancy. Certainly even way back in the Stone Age when I did medical school, this was a problem that had been identified. And, of course, it was a problem that happened to children of alcoholics. One problem, though, is what we're recognising now is that that uh, fetal alcohol syndrome certainly exists as a syndrome, but it's at the severe end of a spectrum. And a relatively small number of people are affected by fetal alcohol syndrome. A much, much larger number of people are affected by something called fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. One of the difficulties with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is is selling the name because the name has the word alcohol in it. And, of course, most people, when they think about it, add the extra two letters at the end of that, alcoholic. That's not me, that's somebody else. It's not my problem. What we're now realising about fetal alcohol syndrome is that alcohol is a very powerful neurotoxin to the brains of developing infants and potentially uh, quite low uh, what people would call normal levels of alcohol consumption very early in pregnancy can expose babies to a risk of developing fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and we know that the brain develops during the first trimester of pregnancy And these early changes and early sensitivity of the brain to alcohol is in the first half of the first trimester. So that's the first one and a half to two months of pregnancy. One of the difficulties then is that if you're not planning on getting pregnant or you become unexpectedly pregnant and you stop drinking when you discover that you're pregnant, you may have already uh, given your baby an exposure to alcohol during pregnancy. It's hard to know exactly what the dangerous dose of alcohol is, but we think from uh, animal studies, from mice who have the same susceptibility to alcohol that uh, humans do, that it may even be as low as two large drinks during the first two months of pregnancy may increase your risk of uh, 
fetal alcohol yeah. spectrum disorder. And that's a very scary thought, really. It is, yeah. For ac- for accidental or unplanned pregnancies, it, it can be a really scary thought, yeah. A really scary thought because, because most people will do the right thing and they'll stop drinking when they find out that they're pregnant. That's right. But they may have already exposed their baby to a potentially powerful neurotoxin during a very important part of brain development. So, so what are the implications of, of you know, the, that exposure early on? One of the difficulties is that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is a spectrum and the characteristic feature of the disorder is that there's no characteristic feature. <laughs> and so that people can present with a, a range of different uh, problems during childhood and on into adulthood that can be misdiagnosed as attention deficit disorder, bipolar disorder, uh, autism spectrum disorder... And people are looking at small parts of the diagnosis, but we're not very good at looking at the big picture because this is a problem that we haven't really appreciated until fairly recently. Mm. Certainly at its extreme end, it's not a difficult diagnosis. No. These, these, kids, these kids have an absolutely classic appearance. Usually the mums are not particularly uh, backwards in, in letting you know what's happened. Um, but there are three physical features of fetal alcohol syndrome which is small eyes, so the the sort of cross-sectional measurement across the eyes is reduced, so babies tend to have, and people tend to have rounder eyes rather than almond-shaped eyes. And there's that sort of ridgy bit between your nose and your top lip, which is called the philtrum, it's a Latin word. And the philtrum is either reduced or absent in fetal alcohol syndrome, and people tend to have very thin or, or... absent top lips when you when you're looking at them they don't have thick full lips like luckily everybody here on the panel has <laughs> one of the things about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is the diagnosis is very complicated and and none of those physical features may be present mm. but there are other features through uh, in areas of brain function that, that are present that will help you diagnose, diagnose the problem. So, so it, it's not as easy to diagnose as, as someone on that severe end of the spectrum that has the characteristic physical features. So what's your take-home message, Deep Thought? Certainly uh, national, uh, national uh, health groups talk about there being no safe level and, uh, of drinking in pregnancy or perhaps while you're planning on pregnancy, but certainly uh, around the dinner tables of, uh, of the northern suburbs of Melbourne, uh, there's, there'd be a lot of discussion amongst friends that, you know... Over a they, glass of wine. Yeah, over a glass of wine. That, that, that can't be really serious. That, you know, it's just surely, you know, one glass can't hurt my, my developing baby. Look, I think there's two take-home messages from this one is around the the risk and the risk is if you are if you're thinking of getting pregnant or you're not on any contraceptive the only safe level of alcohol to be consuming is zero zilch nothing no alcohol whatsoever any exposure to alcohol during this critical period of your baby's development and it might be an accidental pregnancy increases the risk but it's risk it's not definite, it's mm. a risk. The other thing is around how we conceptualise, how we think about the problem and how we treat it. That uh, often these people as adults end up in the forensic system, so it's seeing them as being impulsive rather than naughty. The other difference is the spec- The other thing we need to think about is the spectacular failure we have with traditional treatments 
of these problems, where normally we try to adjust people to fit into the environment. Treatment is really around adjusting the environment to fit into these people. Okay, I'll drink to that. Thus ends another chapter in the Chronicles of Radiotherapy. Stay on board for Einstein and go-go. See you next week. Bye. Let's turn on. By that, I mean the power of the mind. Let's, let's learn how to use the power of our mind. <laughs> You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.